0: Amen. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But of course, the Apostle Paul wrote, I can do what? All things through Christ who uh, strengthens me. And so that song is very appropriate uh, for the message today. Matter of fact, uh, uh, all that we sang earlier, I was thinking how beautifully it uh, blends into the uh, truth that we're going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, Keys to Spiritual Growth is our current uh, sermon series. And the last couple of messages, uh, we've been looking at spiritual warfare. And as we concluded last Sunday's message, I shared the importance of learning to utilize the armor of God in advancing the gospel as we face opposition from the devil. Now, we're going to uh, do that. Uh, by examining uh, Paul's description of the armor in Ephesians 6. But before we do, uh, we need to look at a great encouragement that's given to us at the very beginning of this passage and I'm referring to verse 10 and this is going to be our complete focus uh, this morning and then next week we'll begin to look very specifically at the armor God has provided us to engage in spiritual warfare as we advance the gospel. But I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes and look with me at Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Before we even put on the armor of God, before we engage in spiritual warfare, it is imperative to realize that the battle is the Lord's. And the Lord Jesus Christ has not lost a battle yet. Amen? Praise God for that. Jesus is the church's champion. He already, past tense, invaded Satan's domain and won a complete victory over the devil. The church does not fight to win the victory. We fight from a position of victory that has already been won for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Matter of fact, when we go uh, deeper into this Ephesians 6 passage uh, next week... The key phrase, it's found three times in the passage, is stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And the thought is, stand firm in the faith uh, that Christ has already won the victory for you. That the battle is his and he'll give you grace. And when a church or when a believer understands this, you can uh, take the very worst Satan can dish out. Knowing that victory is guaranteed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore all I want to do in this message is simply glory in the church's champion. I just want to lift Jesus up and exalt this magnificent champion and the resounding victory he won over the devil for the purpose of, of strengthening our faith in him. I trust that's what this message will do as we see our glorious champion that we'll see that he truly is worthy of our trust. So look at that first truth. First Jesus defeated the devil by his victory in the wilderness temptations. Jesus defeated the devil by his victory in the wilderness temptations. The incarnation of Jesus on earth, when God became a man, was a daring raid to rescue man from Satan's bondage. Jesus had a mission, and that mission was to live A holy, sinless life so that what? He would qualify as a sacrifice for the sins of man. To be able to pay the penalty of our sin, to bring us out of Satan's domain through his forgiveness and through his power. And of course, Satan had one goal to sabotage that mission by disqualifying Jesus from being that holy, sinless sacrifice by causing him to fall into sin, to act independent of his Father in his humanity. And this brings us to the three temptations of Christ. Uh, Look at that first temptation there in your sermon notes at verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights... He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice it says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Mark's gospel, the language is even stronger, saying that Jesus was literally compelled or driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And the point is this, and most people miss this in this story. God was on the offensive, taking the fight to the devil. God was literally luring the devil out into the open in order to engage him face to face in battle. And why? Why would God be doing that? Because God wanted to provide a clear demonstration of His Son's superior strength over our enemy. And don't miss the timing of this monumental battle between Jesus and the devil. It took place right after Jesus' baptism. When the Father declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In his baptism, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. In the wilderness temptations, Jesus proved he was the Son of God. In his baptism, goodness at its highest commended him. In the temptations, evil at its lowest was conquered by him. God wanted to make absolutely certain that when we read Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, we know that we are putting our trust in a true champion, a champion who is battle-tested, a champion who proved victorious over the enemy, a champion who is worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust. Now, as we examine the first temptation, notice when Satan uh, decided to make his first move. We're told that it was after Jesus had what? Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It says, and then he became hungry. Now, this is very, very significant because in an extended fast, after several days, believe it or not, uh, you actually lose your craving for food. And when hunger does return, this is the body's... uh, Warning signal. It's like a warning bell going off announcing that the body is literally beginning to starve to death. So then think about this. So starvation has set in. Jesus' life was literally at risk. His mission, the completion of his mission, was in jeopardy. So it was at this point of acute need, acute pain, that the devil attacked and the tempter said to him hey if you are the son of God command that these stones become bread now look at the next statement in your sermon notes which explains the heart of this temptation which was very very subtle the temptation was in the subtle suggestion that Jesus hunger was incompatible with being the son of God that the father had failed his son And therefore, Jesus could not trust his father and needed to meet his need apart from his father. That was the subtle temptation here, that the father had led him into the wilderness and now he's here starving to death, possibly to die, and hey, you're the son of God, and this is how your father's treating you? Hey, You're the Son of God. You have the power. You don't need to wait on your Father. Act now. Turn these stones into bread and eat and meet this need. And we should understand this because we're tempted in the same way. How can your Heavenly Father have let this happen to you? I mean, how? I mean, how can God just sit on His hands and and watch you struggle and and suffer like this and do absolutely nothing. I mean, you're only asking God to do for you what he's done for so many, many others. And so why is everything turning out so, so wrong for you? Where, where is God's love and power? You deserve better than this. So why wait on God? Get it your way. And you better act now or you're going to die in this wilderness. We understand that. We struggle with that continually. We have very basic needs for security, for belonging, acceptance, appreciation, whatever it might be. And often we become starved for those needs to be met. And that's when the devil, devil pounces. Don't do it God's way. Don't wait on God. And he always provides an alternative that will eventually lead you into disaster. Now look at the triumph of Jesus in the fourth verse, which we already read there in verse 4. But he answered and said, it is what? Written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Son of God, This is, and I think this is very important. The Son of God spoke the very first words in his ministry. And what were they? Mark it well. It is written. His first words. It is written. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which is a reference to Israel's 40-year wilderness experience. It's fascinating. He's out in the wilderness, and so he draws truth from Israel's wilderness experience when God supernaturally provided manna for their food. And look at the next statement in your notes. In essence, what Jesus said to the devil is this, My hunger is not God's failure, but God's opportunity to demonstrate His faithfulness. Therefore, I wait on Him alone. That's what Jesus was saying. I don't need to act independently of my Father. He knows me. He loves me. My acute need, my pain, my very starvation, it's not God's failure. It's God's opportunity. I wait on Him. So the next time, The next time you are tempted to plunge into despair and disappointment over some need that you're starving to be met, look to the church's champion. Look to Jesus and be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the might of His strength. Boldly proclaim my need. My adversity, my crisis, it is not God's failure. It is God's opportunity to demonstrate his faithfulness in my life. Therefore, like my champion, I wait on him alone. Look at the second temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the devil took him into the holy city, of course, Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and he, the devil literally quotes from Psalm 90, he will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a t- stone. So the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he invites him to take a swan dive of 450 feet. In essence, the devil says, So referring back to the first temptation you tell me you're going to trust God and you're going to trust God alone that's great okay prove it prove it and if you wonder if it's God's will I mean goodness gracious it's written right here in the Bible this Bible that you say you're so committed to it's written right here in Psalm 90 verses 11 and 12 so go ahead Let go and let God protect you and prove his reality that all can see. Look at the next statement in your notes. In the first temptation, a peril existed that resulted from being led by his father into the wilderness. He was led by his father into the wilderness. As a result, he came to the place where starvation set in. So a peril existed that resulted from being led by his father. In the second temptation, the devil tried to entice Jesus to create a peril of his own making and then presume his father would bail him out. Now look at the uh, triumph of Jesus, how Jesus responded in verse 7. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus again quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He goes again back to the time that Israel was in the wilderness. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which reads in its entirety, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Massah is a reference to Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. At Massah, the Israelites were in need of water. I mean, it was, a again, one of those acute needs where if they didn't get water, they were going to die. And they began to cry out, Is God among us or not? In essence, they were saying, God, if you're there, if you're really alive, then prove it and by giving us water. Now look at the next statement in your notes. To test God is to say, I will trust God if, and circle that word if, I will trust God if God comes through in the way that I demand. And that was was the problem the children of Israel had throughout their wilderness experience. Always making demands of God. When they would come to these points of need or crisis or adversity, they'd cry out, prove that you're God, and we demand that you prove it in this way. So to test God is actually doubt, looking for proof, which is a perversion of true faith. Jesus' response to the devil is so beautifully simple. I already trust my father, therefore I have no need to test him. I already trust him. I don't need to test him. I don't need to prove him. Now, how does the devil test tempt us to test God. Now there are many ways, and my time limits me this morning, but let me just focus on, on one. Uh, the devil will tempt you uh, to test God by provoking you to grumble and complain about your circumstances in life. And we need to understand as believers how God sees that. When we complain. When we grumble, when we murmur about our circumstances, we are literally putting God on trial. We are saying, God, what's going on? I mean, you've really messed things up this time. And you better straighten this mess out. And I mean like right now, if you're going to have my continued allegiance, if you're going to have my continued trust. But we must remember, beloved, A sovereign God who can take the all things of life, even the evil, perpetrated against his child and by the alchemy of his grace transform them that they boomerang against the devil, enhance the character of God's child and rebound to the glory of God, that God is worthy of our unceasing praise. Look to the church's champion, Jesus, who transformed the cross into an instrument of salvation. We just sang, a cross meant to kill became what? My victory. Apply that to our circumstances. No matter what you confront in life, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the need, no matter the crisis, no matter the adversity, God has allowed that into your life, not to kill you, but to bring you to his victory. To give you the opportunity to realize that the battle is the Lord's. That your strength is in him and in his might and in his might alone. Look at the third temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus' destiny was to wear a crown of glory. Jesus' destiny was to reclaim the earth that had fallen to the dominion of Satan as a result of the fall of man in sin. But he was to wear that crown of glory only after wearing a crown of thorns. It was through his suffering, through his agony, through his death on the cross that that glory would be obtained. In this third temptation, what is the devil doing? He's presenting Jesus a shortcut to glory. In essence, the devil says to Jesus... Yeah, your destiny is to rule the earth as king of kings and lord of lords. Why wait? No need to go by way of the cross. So let's make a deal. I'll give it all to you right now. I just ask one little bitty thing in exchange. Just one little bitty thing. All you have to do is bow down and worship me just one time. Just one time. And you can have it all without the suffering. You know, that word worship is proskuneo in the Greek text. It means to bow down and to kiss toward. And what the devil was saying to Jesus, all you got to do is one time, And then looking at me, just go, that's it. You don't need to go to the cross. There doesn't need to be any suffering. I'll give it to you all right now. All of it. Right now. Look at the next statement in your notes. The devil offered Jesus glory without suffering. And the devil always offers to give you glory. The right end, but in the wrong way. And it's called what? Compromise. That's the essence of temptation. But it's so very, very subtle as it was in this case. Look at the triumph of Jesus. Again, Matthew 4:10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Again, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The next statement in your notes, to paraphrase Jesus, this is what's being said said, devil, I love and I value my heavenly father so much I could never give you the time of day. And why would anybody in their right mind sacrifice the greater to gain the lesser? So devil, get out of here. That's exactly what he's saying. And there's a beautiful lesson here for every one of us. What's the real key In overcoming temptation, remaining faithful to God. It's to see his value and his worth and to love him. I mean, what's the easiest way for me to resist temptation related to other women in terms of my marriage? It's to what? Be focused on the value, the worth, and my love for my wife. And basically, Jesus is saying, Stupid what you're suggesting. I mean, I wouldn't even consider this for a second because I know my father's worth. I know my father's value. I know my father's glory. I love him. I adore him. And I would never sacrifice the greater to obtain the lesser which you're suggesting. So just just get out of here. And again, the devil is always going to tempt you To get the right end, but in the wrong way. Again, as we mentioned earlier, we have legitimate needs. And often those needs can become very acute. It's almost like we're starving. Again, it could be just for a sense of belonging or acceptance or appreciation. It may be that relational starvation. And and, and we're really struggling there. Maybe you're single and and you're just struggling to have that significant other. Other. Question is, are you going to wait on God and do it his way? Because I guarantee the Satan is always going to present an alternative. He's going to present you another person. That'll be a compromise of your faith, maybe an unbeliever, maybe a compromise of your morality in order to obtain it. But there'll always be some little compromise involved where you're required to kiss. The devil, and that's what temptation is. That's what sin is. It's kissing the devil, kissing the devil. See, the devil knows your ambitions. He knows your desires. He knows your needs, and he's going to offer you fulfillment. So be ready. But there will always again be that catch. He's going to. Con- you're going to have to compromise God's word. You have to compromise your integrity, your relationship with Jesus. So, what do you do? You look to the churches champion to Jesus be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might so our champion defeated the devil in the wilderness temptations look at that second point Jesus not only defeated the devil in the wilderness temptations Jesus despoiled the devil by his death on the cross Jesus despoiled the devil by his death on the cross look at Colossians chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 this is beautiful And when I say he despoiled the devil, I'm talking about the devil's prize was you and I. We were his captives. And Jesus' mission was a rescue mission, as we mentioned other, to bring us out of Satan's domain into God's glorious kingdom. And in saving us, redeeming us, that's exactly what he did. He despoiled the devil. Look at these verses. And when you were dead... In your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, Jesus, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out out of the way. How? By having nailed it to the cross. Now listen, this is beautiful. Look at that phrase, the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us. In Roman law, when a person was convicted of a crime and sent to prison, a list of his offenses was literally posted on the cell door. And that was called the certificate of debt in Roman law. And when a criminal served his sentence, when he had paid his debt to society... His certificate of debt was taken off the cell door and stamped with one Greek word, teletestai, debt paid in full. Satan held us in prison. He held us in his prison because he held the certificate of our sin which we could never repay. We were hopelessly doomed, doomed to live our lives as prisoners of Satan and to follow him into eternal damnation, eternal punishment in hell. But did you notice in verse 14 what Jesus did to your certificate of debt? He nailed it to the cross. Jesus paid the penalty of your sin. What were Jesus' last words on the cross? It is finished. One word in the Greek, teletestai. Your certificate of debt was stamped. Debt paid in full. So when Satan brings up Andy Merritt to God, when he brings up any child of God and begins to try to accuse me of sin, accuse me of failure, Accused me of being a loser. Jesus Christ steps in and he says, wait a minute. Look at the stamp of certificate. Tell his testi. His debt was paid in full. Get out of here. You have no hold on him. None whatsoever. He's mine and mine alone. All his sins, past, present, and future, paid in full. And this is what I mean when I say Satan was despoiled by Jesus by his death on the cross. Because one of Satan's greatest booby traps is to get a Christian who has fallen into sin to lose confidence in God's love for him, in God's grace for him as a sinner. Do not fall into that trap. Look to the church's champion, Jesus, and be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Amen? Look at the last truth. Jesus disarmed the devil by his resurrection from the grave. Colossians 2:15 when he had when Jesus had disarmed notice disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. Listen believers, Jesus stripped Satan of his weapons. In Hebrews 2, 14, we read that Satan has been rendered powerless. Uh, If you you want to turn to this passage, uh, about to close, but 1 Peter chapter 5, or you can just listen to me, 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to show you something interesting. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. How firm in your faith. Going back to Ephesians 6, stand firm in your faith in the victory that's been won for you. Because he's a defeated foe. He's been rendered powerless. He's been disarmed. And the thing that you need to see here, which is fascinating, in nature, if you ever have the opportunity to see films of a lion seeking its prey it doesn't roar it's quiet it uses stealth where then it suddenly pounces on its prey the only lion that roars as it seeks its prey is the old lion that's lost his strength that's lost his power and the only thing he has going for him is intimidation and fear So he tries to use fear to paralyze his victim so he has the opportunity to pounce. And beloved, it's the same way with the devil. He has been disarmed. He is powerless. Don't be intimidated by the devil. Don't fall for his bluff. Don't fall into anxiety, to worry, and fear because that's the only weapon that he's left with. Satan cannot harm the believer. The believer can only harm himself through unbelief. I'll close with this. A butterfly was fluttering in great fright because it was being pursued by a sparrow who wanted to have that butterfly for its meal. The sparrow kept trying to peck at the butterfly. But the butterfly was on the inside of a window, the glass separating the butterfly from the sparrow. The more the sparrow tried to attack the butterfly, the more the butterfly fluttered around in terror, banging into things that damaged its wings to the point it couldn't even fly anymore. What scared the butterfly was that the sparrow was so, so close. I mean, right in his face. If only the butterfly could have understood that the glass was protecting him. No matter how close the sparrow seemed to be, the glass was protecting him. Child of God, when you leave here, Satan is going to get in your face. He's going to attack. But Jesus, praise him, our champion, has slid a pane of glass between you and the devil. It's red, tinted by the blood of Jesus Christ. Satan can peck at you. And he may seem very close, but he can't touch you apart from God's permission. And if God allows it, it's only for your good and his greater glory. You are protected by the champion. You are protected by the blood of Jesus. You do not have to be afraid anymore. Because our champion defeated the devil in the wilderness, despoiled the devil on the cross, and disarmed the devil through his resurrection. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Bow with me in prayer. Let me give you just a moment to reflect on what we've just shared. Have you become intimidated by the enemy? Evidenced by the anxiety in your life, by the worry in your life, by the murmuring? complaining grumbling in your life evidenced by the fact that you're such an easy target to fall into compromise to fall to that subtle trick all you got to do is kiss me this one time would you acknowledge that right now to God would you simply confess that you've been walking in unbelief you have not been strong in the Lord and the strength of his might you've been trying to do it in your strength your power and there's no strength sufficient enough to overcome the devil except the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord that is yours And as you confess that, would you just right now just spend a little time just rejoicing, praising, glorying in your champion, the champion of the church. Praise our champion. Praise him that he defeated the devil. Praise him that he despoiled the devil through his death, that he disarmed him through his resurrection. And acknowledge, yes, Jesus, you are worthy of my trust you're worthy of my confidence you're worthy of my allegiance and then thank him that he has slid a pane of glass between you and the devil that's been tinted with his blood and that Satan cannot touch you apart from his permission unless God knows it will work for your good His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. Father, as we come to you this morning, I know all of us, including myself, we so readily admit. The uh, frailty of our humanity. Uh, we admit that we so easily become intimidated by the devil. We way too often fall to his subtle tricks, finding ourselves in a position of compromise, compromising our personal integrity, compromising your word compromising our relationship with Jesus because we have failed to see who you are and what you've accomplished for us we so easily become distracted by fear anxiety Lord we acknowledge I acknowledge we murmur we grumble we complain we put you to the test, we put you on trial, so we simply acknowledge that and we claim your promise if we confess our sins you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But Lord it's very obvious what our greatest need here is this morning and it's not necessarily going to happen in a single service but lord this needs to become the very bent the very direction the very focus of our lives our greatest need is to see you is to see your glory see your majesty to see your value to see your worth to see our champion jesus our savior and lord so lord this is our prayer Grant us, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, grant us that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, open our eyes to be able to see our champion, his infinite worth and value, his power, might, strength, and love. And in seeing him, to trust him, and entrusting Him to surrender to Him, and in surrendering to Him to know His life being formed in us to be displayed through us. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts to see what is the hope of our calling in Christ. Open our eyes to the provision that You've made for us in Christ, that there's nothing that we lack for spiritual growth. There's nothing that we lack to gain the victory in spiritual warfare. There's nothing we lack That would prevent us from advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ locally and globally. And then, Lord, open our eyes as we've talked today of that power that works in us. Open our eyes to the power you've made available to us through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And, Lord, we yield to that indwelling influence to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because we know that the Holy Spirit has one simple task in our lives and that's to glorify our champion and to make him known to us that we could make him known to a lost world. So, Father, renew us, revive us. We are totally dependent upon you. We are desperate for you. And so, Lord, we thank you that as we come to you in our dependence and desperation, we are met by a God who loves us, a God who opens his arms wide to welcome back the prodigal son. And you're always ready to restore, always ready to cleanse, to wash, to give us a new beginning. So Lord, give us the grace to walk in that new beginning, ever keeping our eyes on Jesus, our champion, the author and finisher of our faith. For it's in his name we do pray amen as the invitation is extended today um, again just continue to respond to the truth that you've heard i'll be here to receive anyone that has uh, any decision that you'd like to share if you've been visiting in the church and god's been leading you to uh, become a part of this church family it's our tradition here at Edgewood. we would ask you during this invitation uh, to come down the aisle and simply indicate that to me and we do that because we want to get your face before our people so that they can get to know you, love you, and you can get to know and begin to love them and begin to make those uh, connections. And uh, we would ask you to make that first step, and then we'll take you on that remaining path to a full membership. Uh, if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, what a wonderful message for you to hear. If you are one of Satan's captives, that... Uh, Satan, that the Lord Jesus Christ literally invaded his domain to deliver you, uh, to take that certificate of debt that the devil is holding against you and to nail that to the cross and to stamp it, debt paid in full. And that can become your reality by placing your trust and faith in Jesus Christ by inviting him into your heart to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life and we would invite you to do so and we invite you to publicly profess that that jesus now is my lord and savior and i gladly follow him and want to unite with god's people in honoring him so uh, please stand as the invitation is extended and uh, you simply be obedient to the lord